A deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Deeper Look podcast. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI360, and I'm privileged to be joined by Pumzile Mlambo Mbuka, the United Nations Undersecretary General and Executive Director of UN Women. Mrs. Mlambo Nguka, welcome. Thank you, thank you. If you're a regular listener, you know I'd love you to subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're a new listener, I'm sure you'll want to subscribe after hearing the conversation I'm going to have with Pumzile, one of the world's greatest advocates for women and girls. Whether you're a subscriber or not, please leave us a comment. And I'm serious, I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's discussion. I'd also love to hear you comment about issues that you think need to be looked at in, in future episodes. So, so let me know. As our loyal listeners know, this year we're focusing on humanitarian crisis and emergency response. With International Women's Day on March 8th, this is the perfect time to discuss how complex emergencies and natural disasters impact women and girls, including the role of women as peace builders in conflict. Our guest is just the person to give us an informed and informative perspective on this question. Pumzile Mlabo Nguka is United Nations Undersecretary General and Executive Director of UN Women. She has committed her whole life to building a better world, first as a freedom fighter in the African National Congress during the struggle against apartheid in her home country of South Africa, and like so many of Africa's founding fathers and mothers, as a school teacher. She was a member of parliament in South Africa's first democratically elected government, then a deputy minister, a minister, and finally, Deputy President of South Africa. Pumzile, I believe at the time when you were Deputy President, you were the first African woman to hold the position of Deputy Head of State. At that time, yeah. So you have been a trailblazer your whole life. Following service in government, Pumzile established the, the Mlambo Foundation to support education and leadership development. The UN tapped Pumzile to lead its efforts to advance women's equality and empowerment in 2012, and it is fair to say that under her leadership, UN Women is a force for good on the international stage. Pumzile, you are honestly one of my heroes. I'm so thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you today. Thank you for taking the time to discuss a very important topic. Now, we've seen an escalation in crisis in the last several years, and we heard in previous episodes that there are more people displaced today, either as refugees, migrants, or internally displaced people in their own countries than ever before in human history. What should our listeners know about how these humanitarian crises are affecting women and girls? Thank you so much uh, for this opportunity, Patrick. And it's nice to, to reconnect uh, again. 
we miss you in Southern Africa. <laughs> I can tell you that. I mean, as you know, the world is going through a real difficult time. Just the size of the problem and the challenges that we are facing in dealing with humanitarian challenges is the biggest the world has ever had since Second World War. There is about uh, 135 million people who are in need of humanitarian support of one sort or the other. Women and children being in the majority. Women, however, have learned to be resilient, but there's no running away from the fact that they bear the brunt of the pain that comes with being displaced. Because when you have a crisis, the women will take the children, which means that they never fend for themselves alone. They will be taking the responsibility to protect everybody. Playing the role of caregivers. Playing the role of caregivers. Women increasingly in these situations tend to want to go and find better and safer places for their family. And usually this traveling and movement is full of hazards. Mm -hmm. Violence along the way, places to stay that are, are not safe, lack of medical care for themselves and for their children, and issues of citizenship. Sometimes women are separated from their children because uh, they cannot necessarily have their children in in their own documents and, and papers. So that puts both the women and their children at additional at, risk at additional because risk. it breaks up the family. And then because when then women also go to authorities to apply for identity in their own right. Mm -hmm. In some countries it is expected that the women needs a guardian who is right. a man. So it just complicates the problem that women face. And of course, in that situation also, one of the biggest challenges that women face, girls in particular, is trafficking and early marriages. And sometimes parents would actually give away their children, mm -hmm. thinking that they are providing a future from their children, and it never ends well. Right. That's the, that situation. Stereotypes and customs also can limit the capacity of women more than they limit the capacity of men. What For instance, yeah. I've just been to Bangladesh and I was in Cox Bazaar, a refugee camp. That's where the Rohingya refugees that, from, from Myanmar have come into yes, Bangladesh. Yes. And of course, you know, the numbers are staggering. It's the biggest refugee camp in the world right now with about one million people having wow. left Mima into Bangladesh. Some of them have been embraced by the community, bless the communities of Bangladesh who have embraced people in a time of need where they themselves have so little to share, but they've been able to take people who were in need. But for those that are in the camps, women find it difficult to move around because if they don't have the boka, the long mm -hmm. dress, they have a difficulty leaving their homes. In some cases, women told us, if we are five girls and there are three bookers, we take turns. Wednesday is your turn to have the dress and go out. Wow. If you do not have the right dress, you could just be stuck in a house. And, and of course, it is only women that have those kinds of experiences. Mm -hmm. 
In some cases, forcing women to wear a burqa is seen as a sign of oppression mm -hmm. or at least a sign of inequality. Mm -hmm. But in the case you've just described, it would almost seem as if providing it's an women burqas would be an enabler. Yes, in fact, it is one of those most really uncomfortable choices that we face in situations like that. We obviously don't want to prescribe to the women who they want to be, how they want to be. At the same time, we do not want to be associated with perpetuating customs and traditions that are limiting to women. So it's one of those yeah. dicey, dicey situations. So at the very least, we can expose the women to people who have shared beliefs, who would be able to help women, but to completely deny women the possibility for them to solve this problem would also mean that we are condemning them into a, a situation that is otherwise undesirable. You know, it's an example of meeting people where they are. Mm. You have to meet people where they are. From there, you can establish relationships and empower them to take control of their own mm, lives. Absolutely. In the camps and in people who are in that difficult situation, is also that it could just be the best time to change traditions and norms that they have held, which tend to be oppressive often to, to women. It was interesting to talk to the men, those who run the camp, about the situation of women and the need for them to find ways of addressing the problems that women are facing and them also feeling that as people in charge of the camp, it really would be better if the women were not stuck in the house because they want women to pick up their rations and they want the women to be able to say what would work for them in the household because they are the ones that will also need to take care of the nutrition of the children. Mm -hmm. So the practice of keeping women indoors is frustrating what is otherwise a program of the camp that should be flowing. Right. Uh, and therefore the camp were just saying themselves, uh, uh, Muslim men were saying that, you know, maybe this is really not a realistic situation. And hopefully, if they begin to change because of the objective conditions, that begins a process of change that may be irreversible. A positive process of change. Mm. I've been thinking about whether these crises mm. do provide some hidden opportunities Definitely. to empower women because we know that women are disproportionately mm. affected. Mm. We know that the majority of displaced and refugee and migrants are women. And we know that they face these risks that you mm. spoke about, gender violence and discrimination in the distribution mm. of food rations and things like that. Freedom of movement. Freedom of movement. Mm. But I'm interested if there's another narrative about empowerment. Yes, actually there is, because we have seen that nations that have come out of a crisis sometimes have a window of opportunity as they are coming out of a crisis to adopt radical change. Mm -hmm. In Colombia, for instance, the whole process of negotiating for peace puts women in the center of the negotiations. 
women took an active part in the negotiations. They ended up with a peace agreement that almost looks like the SDGs in the sense that there is a chapter on women, but gender equality is also reflected throughout the agreement. Mm -hmm. This is not the way the main constitution of that country is, but what came out as a peace agreement is much more advanced than the other agreements that govern the land that they've had before. Because at that time of negotiating for peace, it was an opportunity to dream bigger and to have a vision that surpasses where they are. Right. And because it is an agreement, it is something that is adopted and it is something that has to be practiced. Of course, implementation may be a little bit tricky, but it is there right. uh, for women it to take It does have some legal this. basis to it. I mean, if you think also, even Afghanistan, mm -hmm. yes, the number of women in parliament is not as high as you would like to be, but it is above 10%, mm -hmm. which is above many of the countries that have not had the kinds of war situation that we have had in that country. Somalia, the participation of women in the process leading to elections and the number of women that managed to get into parliament surprised us pleasantly. So there is something about crisis that makes a lot of people want to take hold of their destiny. So those are great examples, both of women's empowerment. So through crisis, probably a combination of just practical necessity that the society and the men in the society, they need women as partners. South Africa, the high participation of women in South Africa post-apartheid was as a result of a negotiated constitution in which women and men were very clear that uh, we want a non-sexist, non-racist, democratic South Africa, and it must be reflected in the Constitution. The examples you gave, in addition to empowerment, they're examples of peace building mm -hmm. and women's role in peace building. Mm -hmm. And there are other ones that come to mind, like in southern Senegal, in the Casamans, mm -hmm. where women have played an important role at the community level. Mm -hmm. Mm. in brokering agreements between the insurgents mm. and the community members mm. and the government. Mm. And oftentimes when you get down to that community level, you'll see women leaders. Playing an important role. Burundi, the peace mediators in that country who play a significant role in diffusing conflicts and tensions before they become fatal. Mm -hmm. Those women operate at a grassroots level. They are the kinds of women that you will never read about in the newspaper. They will manage to avoid a situation that you would then read about. Right. So in their own quiet way, they take the responsibility to maintain the peace in their communities. And we've been privileged as UN women to work with those women in those communities to support them with training and to make sure that we create uh, 
possibilities to document what they are doing so that we are able to use that experience in other parts of the world. So I'm interested in what UN Women does as an organization because the UN is the international community's coordinating mechanism for crisis response. And we're familiar with the World Food Program and the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugee, UNICEF. People recognize these as frontline actors in emergency response. What about UN Women? Well, one, we are the people that would facilitate the provision of safe spaces for women. In Bangladesh, for the Rohingya women, we have our own multi-purpose center where we are able to provide the support for women. But uh, we do not have to have all of the expertise. So uh, someone from WHO will come and join us and assist us to address the health issues. We will train people to do um, uh, counseling. We will go to a civil society partner to provide uh, literacy classes. But through what we observe there, we'll be able to go to the other partners who are providing these big interventions and to highlight to them the specific needs that women have that they must pay attention to. We are the people that will raise the issue of lighting, the proximity of latrines to the house, who will go to the camp manager and insist on the documentation of incidences of violence so that we can track, prevent, and see that uh, the incidences are not going up. When I was in Bangladesh now, we signed an agreement with the Human Rights Commission of Bangladesh to document the violence that has been experienced by the Rohingya women from when they were in, in Myma, along the way, and where they are in the camp, so that we can actually have a systematic way of checking so that at some point there should be access to justice. Right. And we would have documented uh, properly. We are in Zatari camp in Jordan. Mm -hmm. Again, there we have our own multi-purpose center where women are actually working, acquiring skills, running the small businesses, improving their education. And of course, together with UNFPA, uh, we are also able to support women to address their reproductive needs. UNFPA provides some of the services that women need. And we also make sure that in the administration of the camp, women's leadership is recognized. Women get to have a voice. And if there's violence against women, the authorities of the camp are aware. They intervene and they looked at whether there's adequate support and protection. That's for great. Women. So you're you're bringing some dimension of accountability mm. for what's happening in the situations where women and girls are caught yeah, in crisis. Yeah, yeah. In the DRC, in the Eastern Congo, where as you know, the problems are so big. Right. And it's been going on for a, a long time. In addition to just the basic everyday needs of shelter, food, etc., we also have been investing in training women to participate as effectively as possible in leading their communities. Mm -hmm. The last time I was there, the women were telling me that, you know, we now want the elections because we want to run. We want to take our destiny into our hands because what we have experienced, we do not want the next generation to experience. To hear a woman from the Eastern Congo being so determined, having gone through what they have gone through, 
shows the extent to which even in a dark hour like that women have the resilience and the resolve to actually get themselves out of the situation. Yeah, that's a profound statement. Mm. And it's really indicative of deep change, yeah. of real change that can be... And not feeling helpless. That's, well, you know, this will always be the situation. Right. There's nothing I can do. They're saying, no, we actually want to become leaders. Uh, we want this election. We want to learn how to campaign. How would I write a manifesto? Mm -hmm. uh, these are the things I want to stand for. These are the changes that I'd like to see in my society. That for me was just so special. And we have also been uh, distressed about the situation of Nigeria uh -huh. and the abduction of the girls, of the girls that uh, managed to be uh, released and brought back to their community. We have been working side by side with the ministry there and the many other partners to help them to rehabilitate, to get counseling, to get their lives back in order again, and to try to also support them to dream and move beyond the situation and to actually do some career planning with them. Right. And so they see a future. Yes, and to see what would you like to do with your life moving forward. A lot of them wanted to be in the careers that have to do with health. Mm-hmm. Uh, with security and with some form of economic activity. But I, I was struck by the number of those that wanted to be in, the, in a security-related. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. So I asked them, so why? I said, no, because I now appreciate the importance of security forces that work to protect people. Because if we had adequate security in our community, we would never have been stolen. Right. I do not want this to happen to my children and to my family and to other people in my community. I also now understand the importance of security forces that care, that will fight for us, look for us until we are found. Yeah. You know, when you live in an insecure situation, you realize how basic security is yeah. the foundation Absolutely. for everything else. Yeah, something that you take for granted. Some of our colleagues have been and, and still are working with the different authorities to make sure that uh, there is safety and support. Mm -hmm. For instance, we have seen such a big influx of refugees, some of them girls and children that are unaccompanied when young children boys and girls for that matter are unaccompanied is also very important that the children are documented if the children are not documented and are unaccompanied they just disappear they are trafficked and you can't even trace right and even when there's an opportunity for them to be reunited with their families if you do not have documentation that makes that exercise even more complex. Are you seeing new technologies being put to use to improve the documentation? Well, blockchain technology. So you use blockchain? Yes, uh, we are at the brink of rolling out the technology uh, in Kenya as well as in the Middle East. And that's for documentation? Documenting that is for documentation and for transfer of money. And we will be providing each refugee with a device 
which will have the apps that they can download for themselves right. through which then we are going to be able to interact with them to transfer resources for them to pursue a training and, and, and education of course also for identity that's great and that use of mobile money I think it's becoming more and more clear that that's one of the most effective things that can be done to empower refugees and displaced people. In the case of education, we were, we were partnering with Vodafone for online learning, mm -hmm. some of which will be blended learning, so mm -hmm. that it's on and off and offline. It is to make sure that they can get pre-tertiary qualification, especially up to grade 12 so that after that they will be able to go to university anywhere in the world. So the curriculum is such that they will be able to have a high school qualification that opens doors for them to right. go to university with a certificate that is recognized by most universities That's in the world. That's fantastic because one of the greatest disruptions caused by all this conflict is the disruption of children's education. Yeah. At the very least, as they go through all the difficulties that they go through, you just want to make sure that there's an aspect of their lives that is not completely at a standstill. There's a sense of purpose. Right. There's a sense of achievement. There's a sense of intrinsic value being added, which no one can ever take away from that, well, which is the good thing about education. Right, and that creates a sense of hope. Uh, absolutely. And without hope, yeah. It's difficult to accomplish Absolutely. anything. Absolutely. And this is also one way in which you give the hope that might create people think twice before they become radicalized because exactly. there's something to live for. That's right. Mm. You've spoken a couple of times about uh, psychosocial counseling. Mm. And it makes me think about the role of women as counselors. Mm. And when you think at, at the family level, Often it's the mother mm. who plays that mm. role in mm. the family. Mm. Mm. I understand that uh, women and girls need psychosocial counseling after they've been through these traumatic mm. experiences, but do you see women playing the role of informal counselors within oh, their communities? Absolutely. From your grandmother to your aunts to your sisters, these are the people that you will sit with and you will talk about some of the things that you can never share with anyone else. And because these are members of your family, they're going to be in your life mm -hmm. uh, for a very long time. It then becomes a safe environment and there's continuity. Women in Sabia, for instance, in their own interaction about their experiences, sharing with their friends through dialogue, were able to identify the problem of girls that were disappearing, girls that then were identified to be trafficked, and out of that we're able to start a formidable program that tracks the girls, brings them back, helps them in a counseling process to talk about their ordeal, and through those discussions, check other girls that they have met wherever mm -hmm. they, they had been. One of the programs that we, we are supporting, the women were amongst themselves tracking this phenomena 
going to authorities and authorities saying no this thing does not exist they tracked the occurrence documented went back to authority provided them with their evidence authority then became involved and the program that they have now has become one of the pioneering national programs they are now the advisors to government it was women to women friends looking after friends you know like i'm your sister i'm my sister's keeper right so this thing about women sisterhood within families within community creating an environment where people can trust you with some things that they otherwise do not feel free to to share with other people helps to gather information and insights that then directs us to the right interventions, including access to justice. Right, which you've mentioned a couple of times, mm. the importance of accountability and access Absolutely. to justice. Absolutely, because you know, perpetrators in situations where impunity goes unchecked, they become repeat offenders. I mean, they do it because they can. And it also is one of the things that gives rise to radicalism. Mm. If you feel like the authorities or the people who have Mm. power over Mm. you can act Mm. with impunity. Mm. Mm. What do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? Mm. And there's this desire for justice. What do you think we need to do better or what's Mm. missing in the way we, you know, government, civil society, UN agencies, Two things that I'd like to highlight, the role of men and boys Mm -hmm. in these interventions. In many cases, you'd find that uh, it is women for women trying to engage men who are the ones in authority. Mm -hmm. You actually need the people in authority to be the ones that take it upon themselves to exercise their authority in a humane way, in a caring way, in a responsible way, respecting the rights of everybody and ensuring that women are part of decision-making so that there's nothing about them without them. So getting men to be part of the solution is actually quite critical. We don't have enough of that. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the investment in gender equality. Mm -hmm. I mean, the woman's agenda is broke, as in not having enough money. There just isn't enough investment, and yet the rate of return when you invest in women, from investing in Mm microcredits, in women's education, in women's health, in women's economic empowerment, you change society intergenerationally. You absolutely do, and you get stability. You get uh, you prevent you get higher living standards. Yeah. You get better health outcomes. Mm, mm. So I would say that these are some. It's not the only two things, but I I would just like to emphasize the the importance of engaging men and boys, mm-hmm. and on gender responsive budgeting and investment in the humanitarian work. How do we make the case? to policymakers that there is that return on investment. Many policymakers in this day and age actually know this. Mm-hmm. Then why, why don't we see action? Patriarchy is resilient mm-hmm. to the extent that even the people that 
actually believe in equality to some extent, still do not think that this is a major priority for society. So that is why engaging men and boys, starting from a young age, right. so that uh, injustice must just eke them. Right. They take for granted the privilege that men have, because you know, patriarchy is an affirmative action for men. Right. And privilege isn't always obvious to those who have it. So they actually think this just is the way society is supposed to, to be. So in the natural order of yeah, things. Yeah, this, this, this is just the way uh, uh, life is. So at the same time, I don't want to take away from many men who are pioneers, who are doing a lot of good work, men like you. We just need many more. I've been thinking about how do you change that behavior and about the importance of recording mm. new narratives mm. that men, boys, women, and girls mm. can grow up with mm. that emphasize these qualities mm. that you're talking about. We have to exhibit this new masculinity mm -hmm. that we want to have as a norm in society giving greater visibility and celebrating men who do the right thing is actually quite important. We try to do that in our small way, but uh, at the same time, we also want to be careful not to uh, celebrate men for doing something that is normal. That they should be doing So anyway. we yeah. should not be rewarding uh, men for being human because uh, women do extraordinary things and we don't even reward them. And the men do something that is just normal that they should be doing. So we don't want to uh, beat too much the drum, but at the same time, because we want it to be visible. So it's, uh, it's, it's just one of those uh, yeah, uh, tight ropes. It's, it's a managing change. Yeah, it's managing change, yes. It's managing change. Tungzilai, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I could go on. It's so useful to have your perspective and to hear the examples that you've cited um, of both the challenges ahead and the opportunities mm. and the progress that we're making. And so we're ending on an op optimistic note. And I want to thank our listeners, both new and returning. Um, I'd love to hear what you think of this discussion. So leave a comment on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to previous episodes of A Deeper Look both from this season and last season when we discussed the Sustainable Development Goals. And stay tuned. Throughout this year, we will continue to explore pressing issues related to humanitarian crisis and emergency response. Join us next month for another conversation. Mm -hmm.